Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Files and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. How are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm alright, bro. I'm alright. Had a pretty good day, chilling, you know. It's been alright, not too bad. Um, yeah, what's been going on with you? Yeah, I was like, you know, I had a exotic weekend away to the Czech mountains. Oh, mate, yeah, we actually haven't spoke about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, forgot, well, I didn't forget, but yeah. Now nah, I look wicked, man, because you sent me some cool pictures, man. You saw some mad stuff, didn't you? Yeah, so it's like, you know, lots of little villages and forests and stuff. Um, I'm pointing up some of those pictures onto the Twitter with kind of a bit of backstory about, like, the history and the architecture and stuff. Um, so I did one of those threads today. Kind of fucked it up quite a lot, like, the formatting, but... I didn't even know you did that. Yeah. Oh, no, I just to check that out, bro, because it obviously <laughs> sent me a lot of the pictures, I guess, but, yeah, that's cool, man. So, yeah, no, oh. that was really nice. And now I've got a fairly large shit ton of alcohol left over from the weekend to work my way through. Nice, what you got then. So what we're drinking... First, we need the catalogue of what you've got. And then um, give us more information on exactly what you're drinking today, please. Well, I have just a whole bunch of Sviani. But I want to show you a thing which... <laughs> which, as an engineer, I think you're going to appreciate. So last time we recorded, obviously, like, we take the drinks into the studio and then, like, you know, have to drink what's here. Not getting up to interrupt the recording. So the last beer I had did not taste good because it got warm. So I have built myself an icebox. Nice. For a single beer. That looks like a technical ice. We're on webcam together, like we can see each other, and that's a technical ice box. It's literally like a Tupperware filled with ice <laughs> with beers in it. <laughs> so I don't know whether that's really on the ter- engineer's loose term. I think for that, I think that's thirsty <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, given my level of engineering ability, that's <laughs> it's up there. Brother, if we were one person, we'd be unstoppable. <laughs> we'd be... Between us, though. We'd be like the president of the CIA. I don't know, we'd be, we'd be top secret. It would just be like one normal, well-adjusted person that can do <laughs> Probably, yeah, that's probably more likely, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> no, so which Sviani is it you on? Uh, so the one is at an 11 degree. Uh, okay. Is that the which... stronger one? No, it's the middle one. The 12 is the stronger one, the 10 is the weaker one. I find yeah. 10 is watery and 12 tastes like it's too hoppy, it's quite bitter. Oh, okay. So the eleven sweet spot. It's surprising how much little difference in percentages can give you like that alcohol taste. Mm-hmm. Like I like strong beers, like I genuinely like the taste of them. Like the Dutch beer, yeah, not, well, there is some Dutch, but but the Belgian beers, like the the Trappist beers and all that. Like I like the singles and I like the doubles, but when you get to the triples, there's just too much. It's too much going on, man. It depends on which one, like. Some of them you really don't taste it. Like I really like uh, what's the name? Carmelite, I think's the name. And it's a triple, but you do not realise it's a triple until you try and stand up and you can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like a dragon, so it's like man. So is that is that tonight's tip no. of choice? No, no, it's not, mate. Not tonight. I was gonna get some, and I just thought, can't be asked. Go to the shop, man. But I got in the house, <laughs> and then I realised. I remembered that I ran out. I drank the rest of that bottle you got me for my wedding. Oh, right. I finished that. Uh, I can't remember. It was last week or the week before. And then, so I actually brought a, just another bottle of it. Because <laughs> I was enjoying it. <laughs> so this is oh, cool. uh, Glen Fiddick. This is what Ross... This is like a little little thing my best mate in the whole world got me. Which he, he does love whiskey. So he got me a Glen Fiddick single malt. Which is a scotch. Well, whiskey. Scotch whiskey. 
I'd call it a whiskey personally. I, I don't know why there's a difference between Scotch, Scotch whiskey, and whiskey. It's just whiskey. This is it's just a single malt whiskey. Twelve years old, which is a very nice year as well, if I would say so. Twelve, I think twelve <laughs> years is like the minimum amount of age in a like kind of whiskey. So I'm not into okay. the American ones for me. Um, they're not aged as long, and it, obviously it's a different taste as well, American whiskey in it. But yeah, single malt. Again, not advertised by them. I just really like them. Yeah, you've, you've just absolutely shit-canned our Dragon Soup sponsorship deal there. Well, we could do a combination of Glenfiddich and Dragon Soup. We could probably design a cocktail. Named after this. <laughs> named after this. We are makers of history. The cocktail is a kind of Dragon Scoop Soup and a load of Glenfiddich single malt poured in it. Try it out at Oakley's. You go up to like a Scottish whiskey distillery, you know, talking to the expert, like, yeah, but have you considered chucking dragon soup? <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone involved would be happy with that cocktail. <laughs> Not the people making it, drinking it, or the whiskey maker, or the dragon soup maker. I don't think anyone would be happy about that. <laughs> so, what are going to talk about, Simon, before you teach me? All right, today we have got, um, so we're continuing our kind of step-by-step visit of the Bronze Age civilizations, and today we're talking Babylonia. Yeah, by the river. Exactly. Still <laughs> <laughs> haven't got a good joke about the rivers of Babylon. Linking I do appreciate this. that you're trying. I have been trying, man, but it's not a good link. Like, how many jokes can you make about bodies of water that are really funny? I think the joke is that, you know, the rivers of Babylon should be the punchline, and you're not getting to that. You're, you're skipping the joke phase. Oh, is just it? Getting okay. straight to <laughs> Um, so yeah, so Babylonia then, so we're talking like central and southern part of modern day Iraq, um, and obviously like Babylonia had been like a centre of civilization and urbanisation for centuries by this point, like the very, very earliest cities are in this region, um, so it had a lot of like political importance and also a lot of cultural importance. Um, I think the one thing you can kind of keep in mind throughout this is compare it to, say, Rome today, where the importance of Rome as an idea and as a city is much greater than the importance of, like, the capital of Italy. It's it, it's already carrying that prestige as well, isn't it, by this point? Yeah. Because everyone's, yes. like we talked before, how everyone, all these diplomatic letters would be written in Acadian. Exactly. To yeah. all the other nations, because it's like, it's got that prestige. It's one of the oldest ones out of the, the big ones we're talking about towards the end of the Bronze Age. These are the oldest, aren't they? Because the pe- the precursors to those were called... What's the language they speak again in Babylon? Akkadian. They were called the Akkadians, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, and there's like a continuity going back to like the Sumerians and stuff. And it's like... It was ancient by the standards of the time, even. And like people were conscious of how ancient it was. Um, so kind of at the start of the late Bronze Age, and it's coming off actually a bit of a downturn, let's say. Um, one of the things that had marked the beginning of that Dark Age that came before before the Late Bronze Age, the kind of the traditional cut-off date is when the Hittite king, Mursili I, sacked and ravaged the city of Babylon in 1595 BC. So that kind of put the the region into a, you know, a Dark Age, there was a de-urbanisation and so on, people moving away from the cities, lived in the countryside. Um, a lot of the ancient structures vanished, and many cities were abandoned or became greatly smaller than they had been. Imagine all that information we've lost because of that. All that amazingness. Yeah, but most can be records of, like, you know, counts of goats in herds and, you know. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> it's just a shame, man. It? Oh, 
obviously they're probably still following plenty of us we won't be talking about it but you know it's a shame anyway, when you think how much information there could have been if they weren't too busy blowing each other up well, we're going to talk about the information that's available from there because it's funny you mentioned that mm. um Anyway, so within the northern part of Babylon, so northern and central Iraq, um, there was a group that started appearing there from about 1800 BC called the Kassites. And the Kassites are pretty mysterious. We don't know where they came from, don't know their language. There's all sorts of speculation about what the language is related to. Some people even think maybe it's a version of Sanskrit, but I think that's like wacky conspiracy theory level. Short answer is we don't know who they are or where they came from. But they started appearing in the area around 1800 BC. Names start appearing. And in the about the 15th century BC, the Kassites become the ruling group within Babylonia. So, the Kassites themselves, when they first appear, are clearly distinct. Speak a different language to what the local people are speaking. They have different names. There's the names of gods, which are different. They take over Babylonia, but they very quickly become like integrated. The Kassite language disappears and it's replaced by Akkadian, the language of Babylon. But that said, the kings kept giving themselves Kassite names. So the language continued in names only, but they were speaking Akkadian. They didn't continue old Babylonian names, they kept the Kassite names. A bit like after the Norman conquest of England, you know, the kings start speaking English eventually rather than French, but they don't go back to calling themselves like Ethelwed and stuff like that. Yeah. They continue to be Williams and Henrys and Edwards. Anyway, so the Kassites were a tribal society. Even after they settled down and moved into the cities, they fought to themselves in terms of tribal groups. So they would identify with an ancestor back in the distant past who may not even be a real person. It might be like a fictional hero that they decide is the founder of the tribe. Um, and then they would use the, that ancestor's name as the kind of the name of the tribe. So they would say they belong to the house of yeah, XYZ. Okay. Um, the men in the tribe considered themselves all to be the son of the ancestor, even if he was like a fictitious person. And these houses or tribes could include several villages. And those tribes became the basis of like the administrative units. So like when you're breaking up to sub-regions and governorships and districts, they based it on the tribe that lived there. Uh, and some of these clearly Kassite tribes actually lasted, you know, right in the area before there was a Kassite Babylonian Empire, and they stayed thereafter. So they outlasted their own empires in some of these groups. So the Kassites, you know, they appear first off as a migrant group and then they gradually become the ruling element within the region, within society. But they become completely absorbed by Babylonian culture and language and everything else. They become Babylonians. That's crazy, that is. Again, I think it's a bit like with the Norman conquest of England. Like, you know, the Normans remain a ruling class, but they switch to speaking English and they stop being Norman or French and they become English. Yeah, yeah, I get that. It's just how these tribes came in and and then turned back into them. <laughs> yeah. So, the other kings, like the Egyptians, Hittites, Mitanni, so on, they refer and they think of the king of Babylonia as king of the Kassites. And that's how they address him. Now, in a way, the lack of a specific city identity probably helped Babylonia become like a territorial identity. So that you think of yourself as being from the region of Babylonia. 
The previous empires that existed in the region, they would start in a single city, Babylon or Uruk or Akkad, and they were the empire of that city. And this is a quite different to being from that region and the kingdom of the region. Okay. So because the Kassite people are spread around, like they think of this as well, we're Kassites, we're Babylonians, rather than we are from Babylon, we are from Uruk, we are from Akkad. So, the... We were talking a minute ago about the um, documentation. We have huge amounts of documents from the Babylonians. Loads of stuff is preserved. Like, um, a lot of administrative text. One site, a city called Nippur, on its own produced 12,000 separate texts. Yeah. And the vast majority... When you say text, these are just these, like, tablets, aren't they? Cuneiform tablets, yeah, exactly. Yeah. vast majority that have been uncovered have never been read, never been analysed. So... That's that effort and time, though, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Work like, involved. You know, think of how many people can read Akkadian. Yeah. And they're like, okay, here's 12,000 tablets from one site. Get to it. Yeah. So it's actually like read and like, maybe this will be something, like, again, I'm not an archaeologist, but I think this might be something where, like, AI will become a bit, and, you know, big data will become, like, kind of a game changer for yeah. the ability to at least read and document these. Yeah, and you also need, yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing, it's reading them. That's the problem. Actually, understand like the computer reading them to actually <clears throat> understand it's a tablet, and this is because obviously it's so worn and chipped away. There's going to be massive deviation, isn't there? Yeah, and you know, the, like uh, we, as we said, like the cuneiform text is incredibly like dense and yeah. complicated with these like shapes made with the with the stylus. Um, but what what we have read and what we've looked at so far already tells us very complex administrative system uh, very well organised with regional governors in the cities who are controlling the areas and organising the economy so, you know, harking on the same point we keep mentioning, this palace economy centrally directed from the city everything comes into the palace and is distributed out from the palace in the region so we know that the governors would collect food in from the countryside collect it to the to the governor's palace and then distribute it out to the population. People get, you know, amounts and quality of food depending on their rank. You're a high, high level temple administrator, you're getting the best of the best. If you're a dirt farming, sorry person, <laughs> you're getting like, you know, some crumbs. One of the things which you saw is interesting. Babylon has a very strong religious identity, which we're going to talk about more in a bit. Um, and you have very well developed like temple complexes and temple system and one of the things that we know from these texts is that the temples were offering loans to people in exchange that they then come and work in the temple fields to produce wealth for the temple so it's kind of again where we see that like you know that debt trap that exists you're running short on you can't pay your taxes you take a loan you go into debt and then you can't get out of debt because you're constantly working on someone else's land and we see even the temples are getting in on that, like, you know, oh, come, we'll lend to you, come work on our fields and we'll pay it off. Just that's proving that's that, crazy, yeah. that, isn't it, that even the temples are involved, aren't it? Like, it's like a wealth, it's a normal thing to these people, it seems. Yeah, yeah I'm shocked that organised religion will be there exploiting people and being just a general bunch of shitheels. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you look at our uh, audience. <laughs> <laughs> Some things, you know, some things change, some things stay very much the same. Yeah. 
Um, but what we can say in terms of like social structure is even after things kind of get sorted and the Kassite organization of Babylon gets underway, it still remains less urban than it was before. So like fewer cities, less big and dense cities, more people living in the countryside. Um, on the flip side though, there's a lot of building activity going on, monument building. Um, the kind of the distinctive feature of Babylonia is it's called a ziggurat. So you'd have like these temple complexes, and in the center would be these kind of like um, helical spire, spiral towers. So they sort of spiral around and go up as well, and get narrower as they spiral up. Um, what can I compare it to? Looks a bit like a ice cream. Yeah, I think you're like your classic, yeah, yeah, your classic ice cream. Goes round and gets narrow as it goes to the top. So what? What is it like a pattern? This is, or is it the structure of the building? Starts wide, gets narrow as it goes oh, up, okay. and it like loops round. This is the distinctive building type of Babylonia. Um, so there are lots of this sort of big monument going on. Um, yeah, so it's like you have you have these are the kind of the distinctive ones. A lot of these still exist. Um, the problem is because they're made out of mud brick and they're in the Iraqi desert, they're quite eroded and it's they don't look that impressive. I think that's probably an understatement to be honest. <laughs> Monument <laughs> in the middle of the desert that has been maintained for thousands of years. It's going to look it's going to look barely like it, isn't it? Yeah, it looks, like, it looks like a weird hill. <laughs> yeah. Some of them have been restored, but they were restored by Saddam Hussein. Um, Top gazer. <laughs> Can't yep. wait to go see him. <laughs> this podcast's favourite dictator. <laughs> <laughs> we are sponsored by <laughs> So I mean, like you get a representation from these of what they would have looked like, but I at bet the same they time, terrible if he did them. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. All of them have berets and big moustaches. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously, like by doing this reconstruction, it's like obliterated yeah, the archaeological value of them. Um. But you do have this large-scale monument building going on, and the Babylonian kings would continue to identify like their achievements as builders, not as warriors or anything else. It's about building. Yeah, the few bits of text that I saw, like it always referred to, like this, they're known as rather than if you'd be like Ramses the Great, you've got the um, Summit the Builder. It's mm-hmm. quite a fact. Your Nebuchadnezzar would better. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, that geezer. I think he was called Nebuchadnezzar the Builder, wasn't it? Yeah. Based off like that's a big thing in their culture being builders rather than conquerors. Yeah. And I think this comes from you know this really ancient legacy from these really ancient cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the culture, they were highly literate culture. Obviously, not to say that everybody could read, but the you know more more socially elite people could read, and they had like you know literature they read for enjoyment and for fun and for pleasure. Um, interesting thing. So they spoke the Akkadian language. There was the ancient Sumerian language, which was ancient in its own time. Like the Sumerians were a previous civilization going back thousands of years. The Sumerian language naturally kind of died out somewhere between the year 2000 and 1800 BC. So hundreds of years before our period. But the Babylonians preserved Sumerian as a literary language. They were still writing in Sumerian, even though no one alive was speaking it as a first language. A bit like how Latin 
survived in Europe long after anyone was actually speaking it as a first language. Okay. Um, we have texts which have a line-by-line -line translation from Sumerian to Akkadian, so we can see these are like training texts for people to learn how to read Sumerian. Um, it's possible that the Sumerian language had like a religious significance in the same way like the Catholic Church preserved Latin uh, okay, or yeah. the Coptic <clears throat> Church in Egypt preserved the ancient Egyptian language into the early 20th century. Okay. Um, so it may have this significance. Um, they also produced a lot of literature. So they produced stuff which was read for pleasure and they also had like a kind of definitive, uh, um, sorry, a developed mythology, and they were writing it down. Oh, okay, like stories, like literal stories, then. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the most famous of these is an epic poem called "The Epic of Gilgamesh." Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, everyone's heard of that, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I've heard, I don't know. I've definitely heard of it. Yeah. No. I, I think it's pretty famous. It's pretty famous. Um. So this was definitively written down somewhere around 1200 BC. The story itself might be as much as a thousand years older than that. Like it appears in other poems and stuff written down earlier, but like the definitive version that we know okay. was written down something like 1200 BC um, by a bloke named, please bear with me, Sin Ieki Uninini. Oh, Nini. yeah. Oh, Nina. Yeah, yeah. Now, he's a little bit different. Like, we can kind of compare it when we were talking about the Iliad last time and, like, mm -hmm. uh, Homer. Yeah. But the difference is the Babylonian author put his own name in the text and, oh. like, a first-person narration. So this person Probably may very well have existed and be yeah. the person who wrote it down. And, like, once you write down the whole thing, that kind of sets it in stone. Like, then once it's written and disseminated, everyone else is working off of that version rather than, like, an oral version yeah, or different yeah. variants. Um, so I think it's worth talking about Gilgamesh, because it's probably the earliest, like, proper work of literature that we have. Um, so the gist of the story is Gilgamesh is a king in Babylonia, and he's an oppressive and unpleasant king. And he's, you know, abusing his subjects. So to punish him, the gods create a wild man they call, that's called Enkidu. 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 And they create this wild man and he's, like, living out in the wilderness. And he's, like, super strong and powerful. And the idea is he's going to stop Gilgamesh. Um, I don't really understand that, Al. Huh? being go, a wild man. Yeah, like, you know, wild, strong man to, like, okay. wrestle him down or whatever. Wrestle him down. So... <laughs> He's like a wild naked man living in the woods and stuff. And some like hunters trap him and catch him. Uh, they get a... I think it's like a temple prostitute to have sex with him and calm him down. And then they're teaching him while he's calm. And they kind of <laughs> civilise him. And then they send him off to go and have some contests of strength with Gilgamesh. And Enkidu loses. But him and Gilgamesh become best friends through these contests. Uh, they go off on adventures together and they decide they're going to travel to the Cedar Forest. So this is the place where the gods of Mesopotamia, Babylonian region, live. A bit like Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. I wonder where the closest Cedar Forest is to there, where they would come and place. Lebanon. Oh. Cedar, cedar trees grow in Lebanon, so this is 
there is some sort of logical basis in this, I guess. And if you're living in like the harsh deserts of modern Iraq, like the forests of Lebanon, probably seem quite yeah, paradisical yeah. by comparison. But there's like a mythologized version of the forest anyway. So they go off to go there and cut down some trees. Um, they have some adventures on the way. They fight some monsters. And the goddess Ishtar, who is the goddess of sex and war, which is an incredible double portfolio. Oh, yeah, probably my favourite. <laughs> parts of religion combined there. <laughs> she decides she wants some She wants some Gilgamesh action. Gilgamesh rejects her. And so to kind of punish him for that, she sends a bull down from heaven that kill, and uh, kills Enkidu. Now, Gilgamesh goes mad with grief for the loss of Enkidu, the loss of his best friend, and like, <clears throat> you know, he's not like cutting his hair, he's like wailing in the desert and stuff. And also he becomes obsessed with his own mortality, and he fears his own death. So he goes off on a journey to become immortal, and you know, he's walking around, he has various adventures, he meets various people, and he meets a man who is immortal. And Gilgamesh asks the man, like, oh, well, you're just a man like me. How are you immortal? And this guy tells him. And he tells him that long ago, that he had a visit from the god Enki. And the god came down and told him there's going to be a storm and he needs to build a boat. And he needs to build a boat for his family and his servants and for all of the animals of the field. <laughs> and he get them all in the boat. And then I've heard that one before. And <laughs> for six days and six nights, it rains and the boat floats round and everything's washed away under the water and eventually after the sixth day the boat crashes into the side of a mountain and the man releases some birds he releases a dove, a raven and a swallow to see if they find land so yeah I mean that's that's the flood story of the bible yeah um, in the end Gilgamesh ultimately fails to achieve immortality. He fails the various tasks that are set to him, but he kind of comes back and he sees the city walls and the monuments, and he kind of essentially recognises, like, okay, literally immortality is impossible, maybe I can achieve immortality from my work. Is the gist. But yeah, this is very, very clearly the biblical flood. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely, 100%, isn't it? Um, very clearly related. Oh, that's mad, man. I think that's probably where I've heard it before, because I've not... Like, when you were saying the story, yeah. that sounded like it was brand new to me, but I've probably just heard the name of the story before. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think, it's, I think it's one of those things where the name's well known, but you're listening mm. to the contents. But, it's um, not story time, bro. We should do story time podcasts, and you just tell us tales of the <laughs> and all the other All the other mythology. But I think this one's interesting because it's very clear that this this legend has to have gone to the ancient Israelites at some point and a version mm. of this has become uh, the biblical story. I was reading up about the guy who translated, got translated in the 19th century and the bloke who had the tablets was reading through and like translating it with an audience and he essentially realised, as he was translating it, the story that he's telling, he realised this is, this is the flood mm. and apparently he started ripping his clothes off and running around the room celebrating. <laughs> um, well, that's major. But, yeah. Yeah, that's quite big, isn't it? Definitely. Like in a context where none of this was known at all, like the Bible was the oldest text that anyone knew of, mm. then suddenly you have this, which is a much older text with the same story. 
But I think it also it's um, gives us more context for how this could happen. So I mean, like in the context of the ancient Israelites, the people who live in like deserts and mountains on the western edge of the Med, right? And a flood there to explain that people have to get like quite creative. They have to take it very literally, or you know, you see sometimes you you your late night History Channel documentaries, which are like, oh yes, it's a cultural memory of when the Mediterranean flooded fifteen thousand years ago. And I was like, well, it's not because we, it's just not. No information survives that sort of time. Could be Atlantis, though. It could be Atlantis. That's what you're missing. Or the flip side, you're like Mesopotamia is subject to like flash floods. The rivers change course a lot. The Euphrates and the Tigris move a lot. So for people living in Babylonia, Mesopotamia, sudden floods that wipe out everything is going to be part of lived experience. Yeah, yeah. It makes much more sense for a flood story to come from that region and spread rather than the literal truth of God delivered to the Israelites, you know. Or there was a massive flood and that's why we can't find Atlantis anymore. Possibly that. Also, when we talk about conspiracy history, which we're going to do at some point, have you ever heard of the mud flood conspiracy? No, but I feel like I want to hear about it. It's an idea that the entire, entirety of history is fake, and like in, there was an enormous flood of literal liquid mud that covered everything, um, and basically all buildings were built by a race of giants that lived before the mud flood, so things like you know New York Central Station were built by giants in ancient times, and then we just excavated it out. Yeah, I'm down with that. Where <laughs> <laughs> have all the giants, Blav? <laughs> exactly. Under the mud, oh, obviously. Really? <laughs> Under the mud. <laughs> well, well, everything would be massive if it was giants. Uh... No, that's the idea. Like you find some massive, like you know, big central station. Oh, ah, it must have been giants. built by giants. So we have to excavate. We didn't build it. We excavated it out of the mud. Yeah, that makes sense. It's extremely logical. I don't see why you wouldn't <laughs> be your first uh, explanation of things. Yeah, no, no, I'm fully on board with that. It makes perfect sense <laughs> to me, to be completely honest. The mud men. <laughs> I've not heard that one. I'm really looking forward to that one. The yeah. conspiracy theory history one. Really looking forward to that. Yeah, that's going to be good. Um, okay, so to back up a little bit let's go talk about like the religion of the region so we've mentioned some of the gods already we've mentioned Enki who was god of the waters we've mentioned Ishtar the most important god for the Babylonians was Marduk so each city in the region had its own god and everyone considered that god lived in that city right so Marduk lived in Babylon like actively not like historically like he lived no, there actively yeah. literally lived there okay so in the, in the city, you have like the temple complex, you have the ziggurat, and within the temple complex would be a building inside of which would be a statue. The statue of the god. And the statue was also literally the god. Okay. He inhabited the statue. So that's how the god lived in the city. His spirit-like infused the statue and he was in the city with them. So it's quite a different... Um, like perception of the religion you know like for christianity and islam and judaism like you know god is a thing in the sky far away whereas for the babylonians god was some spirit around the city it's a very different relationship so the statue of marduk was made of wood and it was decorated with gold and silver and they used it as part of their like civic and religious rituals um and they'd you know decorate it and leave offerings to it and once a year during their New Year festival, they would take it out into the streets 
and then they would also take it outside of the city to leave it in the countryside outside of the walls so the, the god could have fresh air and enjoy the view of the city. <laughs> no, I've thought blame him. Cooped up in that <laughs> drive all the time. Like, you want to get out for a walk, wouldn't you? you got to get out. Again? Yeah, you've you got you to have a change of scenery. It's not good to be shut up. You know, it's like the lesson of COVID, isn't it? You can't be shut up in the room all the time. Yeah. Um. Then once a year, the king would go into the temple and he'd kneel down in front of the um, of the statue and the high priest would go in with him and he would slap the pre- the king around the face and he would take the king's like regalia and he'd put it on the statue's hands. And the king would be kneeling down to the statue and swear to the statue that he had ruled well as the king and he was going to rule well. The priest would then you know, have a little conversation with Marduk and he would... Uh, at the end would say back to the king like yes Marduk says you've been a good king and you can continue and give him back his like kingly outfit okay so the the priest held some power then mm-hmm. they had to slap the king in the face so the priest is legitimising the king yeah and the king's like has to do like a submission to the priesthood but he loved that <laughs> Just submit to be king masochistic Babylonian king <laughs> well it's a bit weird isn't it that you just be like yeah you got to slap the king and then the man it's a very literal like you know assertion of like the the superiority of the church over the yeah 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 kingly or earthly powers um you know and again we compare like when we talked about Egypt where like uh Akhenaten went off into the desert and made his own religion and his own stuff hmm if you'd have to put up with this sort of bullshit, like every year getting slapped in the face, you'd be like, fuck you, I'm going to have my own religion with blackjack yeah. and hookers. No, no, no face slapping religion. <laughs> com. Reasserting your dominance over the temple. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the case in Babylon with Marduk, but the other cities all had the same thing going on with their local deity as well. The deity lived in the statue and you know, they took the statue very seriously. Um... But Marduk became much more important than the other gods in Mesopotamia. One of the things that kind of happened, though, is the other states, the other players, knew this. And they would seek to capture statues of the gods. Well, of course you would, yeah. If you could, once, did they ever destroy them? Would that kill the god? I don't know if anyone That's destroyed in the though, time. The statue of Marduk, I don't think, was destroyed in our time. Because it got captured repeatedly. The, cap- okay. the statue of Marduk got captured and retaken three times. Okay. And obviously, when it gets captured, it causes huge distress for the people. You can't do the yeah. normal rituals. Um, you know, you can't do these normal acts of like the king affirming his rule and stuff, and you feel like the spirit of the god which you believe is in the city has been taken away. Yeah. Um. So it caused a lot of distress when it was taken. But they also then kind of had a narrative of, like, normalising it. Do you not think that would be mad, though? Like, if aliens were looking down on these people back then, and they're like, oh, they're all upset because their rock's been taken away. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're all mourning and grieving, like, there's an alien just looking down on Earth, like, their rock's been taken away and they're all proper upset about it. You know, like, I don't think these are ready yet for intergalactic <laughs> We'll come back in 2,000 years. Let's yeah. see how it's going. Put it back in the oven for a bit. It's not done. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because, like, I mean, obviously, if, if you believe that God is, you know, a hugely powerful being and then you're watching the other city down the road carrying off the statue, you have to build, like, a, a, 
an explanation for that to like you know preserve your belief. Oh, okay. What was that story? So oh, they sorry, believed in these cases it was meant that the god wanted to go for a journey and a travel and to fresh oh, up the scenery. Oh, for a walk, yeah. And he sure. allowed himself to be captured. Makes perfect sense. Like I said, you gotta go out for a walk. You gotta get day. out there. You gotta get out there. It pissed me off, like I said, you can't get out of the city because you're in a statue, like, you goes for a walk and that, like, that's perfectly feasible, I'm in with the temple boys, I think. So, then, like, the, um, the creation myth, how they believed the world came to be. So they believed that Marduk, as the kind of the most important and the top god, uh, had defeated Tiamat, the goddess of the sea. So, you know, so like a struggle between the land and sea, and the land wins. And then Marduk had created Babylon, the city, himself, which is why he's so important, the city is so important. Okay. And he creates this, like, ideology that the city, Babylon, is the most important city. The so one at that the was time, made... he was seen as, like, a living god. Is that the idea of the story? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And he made the city and founded it, and people came to the city that he created. Okay. Um... So it's like it's very literal, but it's also then creates this idea: this city is the most important city. This is the number one. Um, again, I think the closest thing to compare it to is the importance of Rome or Jerusalem, but even more so because I mean it's like the idea not just like you know Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified is like the city that God literally built. Yeah. Um, and it creates this universal importance idea. Their literature was copied everywhere, um, including the bilingual Sumerian Akkadian texts. These spread and are copied in other places. Um, Babylonian literature is also translated and spreads to elites in other countries, other states. We have copies of Babylonian literature in Hittite and in Hurrian, so we know it's travelling throughout the region. Okay. Um, Egypt obviously also a very ancient culture even by the standards had its own distinct literature but at the same time myths and histories and legends from Babylon are found at Egyptian sites yeah I don't think that like Ove underplays what Egypt's their prestige was it's just those stories are gonna travel aren't they like I'm sure Egyptian stories are gonna be found in Babylon as well yeah you know it's, it's much like um, you know having a translated copy of a French book yeah. doesn't mean that's like overwhelmed British culture, or for example. Yeah. Um, but it's still impressive that it reached that far. But it, it shows the, the trade and the reach of all these nations and how much interlink there was between them. Yeah, and I think we don't really see the other cultures penetrating Babylon in the same way. You don't really see like, you don't see like Greek texts appearing, mm. like Greek literature being translated and appear. Well, we don't have Greek literature from the time, but. Well, these were the royal Babylonians, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, like it's their big... cultural prestige. It's really, yeah. really great. Which is, it's, hard, it's strange because everyone knows about the Egyptian prestige because of all the big stuff. I think that's it. The big stuff just survived really well, but the Akkadians, uh, the Babylonians rather, sorry. They're the built, OGs. But they built in mud brick, so it doesn't look good now. Mm. Whereas the pyramids will look great for thousands of years to come. Yeah. Um... And of course, as we've said previously, Akkadian was the diplomatic language mm. and the language that they all relied on. So, obviously, if you have places which do not speak and have never spoken Akkadian, but your literary culture and your 
diplomatic language is being conducted in Akkadian, therefore people in your country must learn the Akkadian language, right? Yeah. So we don't know if it's the case that scribes from Babylon went to these places and lived there and kind of got replaced as almost like a form of like literary diplomat or if they just learned it in place. But we know that there had to be people that spoke Akkadian in all of these countries. And we also know that copying of text was happening, even including things which where the scribe didn't understand what they were writing. So the scribe could write cuneiform they could use the stylus and create the marks but they didn't understand Akkadian text how do we know that because we have these texts which have incomplete bits or they include like separate notes they include things which don't make sense okay because they just copied exactly what's in front of them okay so they copy like incomplete text you know there's maybe a line missing from a story they don't realize there's a line missing so they just copy it okay um so from this we can deduce the scribe didn't speak the language, but they were still producing the text. Well, that's probably um, when we say scribes. Like they've probably just said, like found someone who's good with making art into clay, like, and then just been like, copy what it says there, there, and that's yeah. it, isn't it? Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay. So in terms of their relations with the other states, they through most of the period claimed to rule over Assyria in northern Iraq and like northeast Syria. Hang on, why do you say claimed? They in their diplomatic text are claiming to be the overlords of the Assyrians. Like no one should speak to Assyria, you speak to us, we dominate them. When you say claim though, is there dispute over that? Because otherwise you would have said they ruled over Assyria, but you said claimed. Yes. So that's what I'm asking. The the likelihood is that they never had that sort of control. They were just trying to uh, try and present it and stop other people talking to the Assyrians. Try and be like, no, 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 we definitely speak for them. And the Assyrians are like, what do you want about? (laughs) (laughs) But they they claimed that they had this um, seniority-like position over the Assyrians. Okay. there were lots of fights and wars with Assyria. Unlike with the Egyptians and the Hittites, they didn't have this buffer zone in between. It was yeah, like let's, I was going to say, let's just go off geographically. Like... Yeah. So So it's the northwest, that's where Assyria is, of Babylon. Uh, yeah, so Babylon is like, if you think of modern Iraq, so you're yeah, starting down on the Persian Gulf, yeah, up to Baghdad area, and a bit north, then kind of what's now like the Kurdish part of Iraq and the eastern part of Syria was Assyria. Yeah. I always get confused between Mitanni and Assyria because it sort of converges. It's the same area and, and it, yeah. Yeah, Mitanni Mitanni was in the same area, it got broken up. Assyria took over the eastern half of Mitanni and the Hittites took over the western part of Mitanni. Mitanni being the only one that disappears inside the late bronze age, yeah. the others make it to the end. Um, so yeah, so they have a direct border, they're in direct confrontation, they're fighting wars with each other, uh, they're interfering in each other's royal politics as well. So they're fighting basically, it sounds like, they're fighting because they claim that they're overall, <laughs> they're just like, no you don't, I'll just keep fighting you. Yeah. yeah, and like, you know, if you looked at the diplomatic thing, you'd be like, okay, Babylonia must be the stronger power because they're claiming this, but in the mid-13th century BC, uh, Assyria conquers Babylonia briefly. <laughs> and they take the king back in chains to Assyria. Eventually, the Babylonians rebel, but like the Assyrians, briefly at least, are able. Did they to... get the king back as well? Do you not know? Uh, 
Uh, I don't actually know that one. I'll have to double check. But so it shows like their claims over the Assyrians clearly not was realistic. Disputed. Yeah, thoroughly <laughs> disputed. One day they just decided subjugation, Cassus Belli. And then they've just gone ham on them, and they're like, no, no, you don't own us, and they've just been fighting the entire time about it. It's just a problem when you, you don't think what you're doing, you're fabricating your claims. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so the the dynasty, the Kassite dynasty of Babylon eventually collapsed in 1155 BC, so at the end of the Late Bronze Age. And Babylonia itself, as a distinct power, by 1100 would have disappeared. Um, the region never re... Oh, actually, no. It made a brief recovery a few centuries later, and then it was subsumed into the Persian Empire, and then from there it would be a very long time before it was independent again. Okay. Um, so, what I'd like to close with, though, is a little bit from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Because I think this is an incredibly modern and kind of nice part of the story. So as we said, Gilgamesh is off like, you know, questing for immortality and people are telling him not to do it. What? Who sue them to tell him what to do? Well, I said like immortality is something for the gods. But oh, okay. Mortality, mortality is for people. And so you can go off on this journey, but you're never going to find what you're looking for because it's not for people to have. And they say, as for you, Gilgamesh, fill your belly with good things. Day and night, night and day, dance and be merry, feast and rejoice. Let your clothes be fresh, bathe yourself in water, cherish the little child that holds your hand and make your wife happy in your embrace. For this too is the lot of man. That's a good laugh lesson, I think, right there. I think that's it? lovely, isn't it? Look after your missus, look after your kids. Enjoy wash. the little things in life. Wash is a good fucking one as well because, you know, sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes I think to myself, washing's for dirty people. <laughs> I don't need to do that. That's what my granddad used to say, washing's for dirty people. So it's a good uh, lesson you should wash. <laughs> we deliver the best lessons on this podcast. But yeah, you should definitely wash. And yeah, that's beautiful, mate, that was. That touched me off, I really felt that. Appreciate it's nice, it. isn't it? Nice little thing to wrap it up with, yeah. Alright, so we'll... To give a bit of, like, channel news update so we are back to our regular bi-weekly releases um, that's not twice a week that's once every two weeks that is every two up. weeks we have discussed going to weekly but basically we think we would struggle to maintain that we both have like you know real life commitments we're both married I have kids he has we both work full time I think on a weekly basis we wouldn't be able to sustain it so we'll yeah, stick I don't with think bi-weekly so, so we'll stick to the bi-weekly I completely agree Okay, so next time then we will talk about the last remaining of these kind of great civilizations, the Assyrians. The Assyrians, nice man. Fantastic. Well, everyone, thank you very much for listening uh, to the podcast. Don't forget to hit us up on Twitter. At We Are Makers of History. Check out, I will have. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I'm uploading my holiday photos. But... <laughs> Basically, are above to be fair, but with so... <laughs> they're cool as fox. You should look at them. They're the cool. They are wicked sick pictures. So that's a really good idea. You didn't even tell me you were doing that. 
Yeah, I'm genius, man. Yeah, there, there yeah, was some... you, you could have told me, though. <laughs> I, I suppose he's always to be surprised on the podcast. Like, we didn't even tell me you're doing that. That's cool, man. Yeah, so I'm going to do them with a few shreds about Czech history. So there's one I put up today which is talking about the um, churches in Czech Republic. If you ever visit smaller Czech town cities, you'll notice they have these massive churches in all of the tiny villages. And I've tried to explain a bit about why that is. We'll talk some more as well about... Um, uh, Czechoslovakia's history with Germany in the middle of the 20th century and I've got some cool stuff to put up for that as well. Yeah, we're coming towards the, the end of the series now so we decided this was going to be the late Bronze Age Collapse series this is series one and we're sort of discussing ain't we, what the next series could be and we're mm. really I think for me it's got to be uh, like the Nazi war economy one that one's going to be fascinating man yeah, I feel, I feel feel like that's a strong one. Yeah, I mean that's going to be interesting. Like going from that very long time scales where it's all a bit impersonal to getting down to people and yeah. So yeah, I think that's what we want to. We did discuss that we would continue into like the Iron Age of the Middle East. Um, but I think what we're going to aim for is a kind of bouncing back and forth, an older topic and a more recent one, and yeah. go back and forth that way. But they can feed back to us on, on uh, Twitter Absolutely. about it, like if anyone's got any strong ideas that you want to put forward for us, so you reach out on the Twitter um, we'll get anything like that and we'll, we'll take what you're saying on board, definitely we really appreciate the feedback as well, obviously it's a new podcast, yeah. we're both new to this, as you can definitely tell but any <laughs> feedback you guys have got for us would be really gracefully appreciated, because we just know know if we're doing the right thing you know, this is just a hobby between two guys, you know what I mean? We don't make no money off it, but we're doing it for fun. So if we can make it better and you guys have got a recommendation, like swing it at us, like we'd love to hear it, honestly. Unless you're really personal, I'll come on your ass and smash your teeth in, alright? Yeah, definitely let us know if there's anything that you think would be an interesting idea for a series, we'll definitely add it to the list. Also, if you have any questions about the late Bronze Age you'd like to talk about, we are planning to do a bit of a recap next week before we get into the collapse. So if there's anything that you would like to know about the late Bronze Age, anything you're wondering about, anything we've touched on and then haven't explored, any of the tangents which I've said, yeah, yeah, we'll come to that, and then we never did. Um, <laughs> let us know on the Twitter. Why did you look uh, at me when you said tangents, by the way? I just, I, I can't, I can't, can't <laughs> My eyes had to rest somewhere. Yeah, I miss physique. <laughs> physique, specimen of a man. <laughs> but yeah, we'd definitely appreciate like any questions that you have. We'd we will definitely try to incorporate them into the episode. Um, so yeah, as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed what we're doing, then please. Um, leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice it helps us to reach a wider audience um tell your friends tell your mom tell your nan share us around nice one thanks very much everyone <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> bye 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 bye